a long walk up here. This morning's reading is from Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord Jeremiah, the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord, the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law that Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed our words, which he spoke against us and against the rulers who ruled us, bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that that has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, hear. Forgive. 
O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of our evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there, will, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but a troubled time, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week he shall put put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come the one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out to the des- on the desolator. So what we have here is one of the most profoundly beautiful prayers in the whole of Scripture, followed by one of the most controversial and difficult prophecies of the whole of Scripture. So what could possibly go wrong with this morning's sermon? Let's start with the good stuff, which is Daniel's prayer. Friends, the central point of Daniel's prayer, which you just heard Jeannie read for us, is that it doesn't matter if you change locations if you do not change your love. It doesn't matter if you change your location if your love has not changed. You can change your habitation, but that's not going to automatically change your heart. Daniel and his people are preparing to go home. As we've studied in the book of Daniel, as we've made our way through this book, God's people have been in exile in Babylon for almost 70 years. Daniel was taken into exile as a teenager. He was trained in the language of the wisdom of Babylon. He served faithfully in the court of many pagan kings. And now Daniel is in his 80s. And this chapter opens up. And Daniel's reading the scripture, and, he fi- and this is what he finds. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of King Darius's reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. You see, Daniel 
was referring to the prophecies that the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord had warned His people of a coming punishment and an exile for their sin, but promised that in 70 years you'll return. And then later, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, and said, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And friends, what do we see here? We see here first and foremost that math is important. I know that makes some of you upset. Daniel's prophecy is 70 years until, Daniel says the prophecy of Jeremiah is 70 years till the exile ends. Nebuchadnezzar began besieging Jerusalem approximately 605 B.C. This is the first year of Darius the Mede, 539 B.C. That's Okay, move to 66 years. Daniel did the math. The exile is about to end. Friends, math can bring good news. I know some of you in school are doubting that. But math can bring good news. Daniel's done the math and he knows that God is always faithful to his promises. The 70 years are almost up, which means God's people are going home. However, Daniel realizes that it doesn't matter if you change your location if you haven't changed your love. God's people are about to go to a new habitation, but the question is, have their hearts changed at all? Because, friends, you need to understand, Babylon was never actually Israel's problem. Babylon was not Israel's real problem. The real problem was never Israel's location. The problem was always Israel's love or lack thereof. And Daniel knows that if Israel's habitation changes and she returns home, but her heart hasn't changed, then it's all for nothing. They'll simply be bringing themselves and their problems with them. And we know this because you and I actually do this all the time. You know, we decide, you know, again, for example, maybe, maybe in your marriage, you know, your marriage is struggling. You're always fighting and you decide, well, the problem is our house is too small. And so you buy a new house, you relocate to a new house, and, but you continue to fight. It's just now in a new, more spacious location. You tried changing your location, but your love didn't change. Or maybe in your marriage you're always fighting about money and you decide, my income is too small, so you relocate to a better paying job, but now you still seem to fight. You just have a bigger bank account as you fight. Because, friends, we keep trying to change locations when the problem is our love. We, we keep trying to change our habitation when the problem is our hearts. We change our physical location, our financial location, our relational location, our marital location, our employment location, our church location. But friends, we keep ending up in a brand new location with the same old problems. Because just changing your habitation cannot change your heart. And Daniel realizes that. He says, hey, we're about to return from exile, but if our hearts are not changed, we're going to simply end up in a brand new location with all the same problems. So what's Daniel praying for here in his prayer? A change of heart. 
He says, yeah, we're going to get the change of location, but the change of location is nothing if there's not a change of life. So what makes Daniel's prayer just so profound and so beautiful is that it sounds absolutely nothing like my prayers. And I'm going to bet it sounds nothing like your prayers either. I mean, Daniel prays from verse 4 till verse 15, a full three-quarters of this prayer. And all it is is pure confession and repentance. I mean, again, look there at the text in front of you. Here's a sampling of his confession. Verse 5, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we rebelled, we turned aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets. Verse 8, to us belongs shame because we've sinned against you. And then we find in verses 10 through 11, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All of Israel's transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Friends, this is so unlike our prayers because we are more likely to make excuses than make confession. You and I are far more likely to make excuses than like Daniel here to make confession. Well, nobody's perfect. It's not really a big deal. I was tired. I had one too many. Oh, everyone was doing it. Well, I deserve to be happy. Yeah, it's just the way that I am. I'm just being true to myself. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him or her. Friends, we are far more likely to make excuses than to make confession. And church, understand this. Sins that you excuse cannot be excused by God. Sins that you excuse cannot be excused by God. The only sins that can be forgiven are sins that are confessed. If you minimize, rationalize, trivialize, or disguise your sin, you're excusing it. And you're essentially saying, this doesn't need to be forgiven. And if you're saying this doesn't need to be forgiven, then you're not giving it to Him who can forgive it. Sins that you excuse can't be forgiven. But friends, sins that we confess... Sins where we say, yes, it is as bad as you say it is, God, and it needs to be forgiven. Those sins can be forgiven. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just, and He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Friends, sins that you excuse cannot be excused by God. But sins that you confess will be forgiven and cleansed. That's the gospel. That is the good news. So church, let's stop making excuses. And let's start making confessions. Like Daniel does here. Where do you need to start? Now notice that Daniel not only confesses, without excuse, to all of Israel's sin and wickedness and rebellion. Daniel also says, Lord, you were right and just in bringing down this curse and the oath that were written in the law of Moses. Daniel says, in essence, we're not victims. 
We are not victims of a mean and unjust God. We are victims of our own sin. These are the consequences of our sins. Daniel says Israel's suffering in the current situation is not an example of God's injustice. This is actually an example of God's perfect justice. We are right now suffering the just consequences of our actions. We aren't victims. We got exactly what we deserved, exactly what God said He was going to give us in the covenant. And he confesses, God, we've done it. We've gotten exactly what we deserve. So when he pleads, he says, God, we've gotten just what we deserve. Please now give us what we don't deserve, which is mercy. We've gotten what we deserve, which is justice. But God, God, now what we need is what we don't deserve at all, which is mercy. And that's what he pleads for. Daniel doesn't excuse Israel's sin. He doesn't play the victim. He confesses and begs for mercy. In church, we need to do the same. Again, the basis of Daniel's plea is not that Israel is deserving. The basis of Daniel's plea is that God is loving. And that is the same basis on which we approach the Father. Friends, the center of Daniel's prayer is verse 18 here. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news. We do not present our pleas before the Lord because of our righteousness, but because of His great mercy. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Because, friends, what we need is not the justice that we deserve. We need the mercy that we do not deserve. Daniel's hope was in God's mercy and love. And friends, that is our hope today. Now today, you and I, we know that God's mercy has a name. And it's Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. What He has done for us on the cross. On the cross, He bore the just punishment that your and my sins deserve. Jesus was exiled so that we would not be eternally exiled, but now we could come near to God. Friends, God's mercy has a name, and it is Jesus, and in Him is forgiveness for all who confess and receive. What stops you from finding and receiving His mercy today? Daniel's prayer is just profound. It's beautiful, it's profound, and it's immediately answered too. In verses 20 through 23, it tells us that the angel Gabriel shows up again. I mean, seriously, what kind of a life? I mean, Daniel sees angel, the angel flying towards him and goes, Hey, I know that guy. That's Gabriel. Hey, Gabe. I mean, seriously, he has an angel showing up regularly dialoguing with him. And Gabriel is sent by the Lord in response to the prayer, and it says to give Daniel understanding. And hear Gabriel's words in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the words 
and understand the vision. Notice he starts, he says, at the beginning of your pleas. Friends, at the beginning of your pleas. Daniel hadn't even finished his prayer. He'd barely started the prayer. And it says the Lord was ready to answer. Friends, remember, prayer is not about us informing the Lord of things he doesn't know about. The Lord is inviting us into relationship with him. The Lord knows Daniel. He knows Israel's need. And he is anxious for us to pray because, friends, he is anxious to answer our prayers. And Gabriel goes on and he says, I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. Friends, God brought some of you here this morning just so you could hear that. You are greatly loved. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever others have told you and said about you, you are greatly loved. Daniel was not loved any more than you or I were loved. God was revealing himself through his messenger to Daniel because Daniel was greatly loved. And God has you here right now revealing himself to you through his word because you also are greatly loved. And the only question for us is, how do we respond to that great love that God has for us? Now, the response that, Daniel brings to, that Gabriel brings to Daniel's prayer is a prophecy, and wow, what a prophecy it is. Now, friends, many commentators on Daniel will spend more time on these four verses than any other section of Daniel. I mean, many sermons end up essentially ignoring the prayer of Daniel 9 because this prophecy just consumes everything. And friends, I am here to tell you, I do not know for certain what this prophecy means. And there are some of you here going, I do. No, you don't. There are some commentators that are like, I know what it means. No, they don't. One Bible commentator said, this passage is one of the most difficult in all the Old Testament. And the interpretations which have been offered are almost legion. There have been so many attempts to understand these words. And another commentator rightly called this prophecy, I like this, the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. The dismal swamp. Now, friends, I, I say that because I just got to say, you don't build a house in a swamp. You don't build a house in a swamp. You need a firm foundation on which to build any solid structure or understanding. Church, the doctrines on which we build our faith and on which we stand are clearly and repeatedly taught in Scripture. The triune nature of God. The dual nature of Christ, fully God and fully man. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins. His bodily resurrection three days later. These are doctrines, truths of Scripture that are clearly articulated and repeated multiple times throughout the Scripture. These are a solid foundation on which to build and on which you and I will take our stand. But this prophecy, this is not. It is not. Friends, this prophecy is true. And it contains truth. But it is difficult to understand. And there are divergent opinions on exactly what the truth reveals. So while we should study this prophecy in order to understand it to the best of our ability, this is not solid ground on which to take an unyielding stand, nor 
should we build large structures of theology upon it? And I say this, friends, because there is a very particular interpretation of this prophecy. It's been called the linchpin of what's called dispensational theology. Now, some of you may not know that term, dispensational theology, by name, but I bring it up because you're probably aware of the Left Behind series of books and movies that were popularized a few years ago. That series is dispensational theology dramatized. Now, church, it's a newer and a largely American theology. It was an invention from the mid-19th century. It was articulated first by John Darby, who was an Anglican minister, who ministered from 1831 till 1882. And then Darby's ideas were taken by a man named Cyrus Schofield and made popular in the notes of what's called the Schofield Reference Bible, which was published in 1909. Why am I giving you a history lesson? I'm only telling you this to let you know that despite its current popularity, this thought in our American context, because of Schofield and Left Behind, the majority of Christians globally today and the vast majority of Christians throughout history would not have known about this theology and this particular interpretation of Daniel 9 that's become so popular. And again, it's called a linchpin or a foundational passage on which really this whole theology is built. And friends, I tell you this not to bash anyone who believes this, because this passage is unclear, but that's the point. It's so unclear, we should be cautious about building any belief or structure on it. Now, uh, now that everything that I say about this prophecy today and everything I'm going to talk about, I hold with an open hand. This is not a hill I'm going to die on. This is my best attempt at understanding what is a universally, recognize, universally recognized to be a difficult prophecy. And if you disagree or are angry about my comments about dispensational theology, you can email your anger to Patrick McCafferty um, because he's not here this morning to say no. So that serves him right. So Patrick would love to answer your emails. Now, let's look at the text, verses 24 through 27. You can look. It's printed in your bulletin. Open up your Bible in front of you. Pull it up in your Bible app because it's going to make it a little bit easier as we look at it if you have the text in front of you. Now, looking at it, why is this prophecy so difficult? Because there are all kinds of questions that need to be answered about this prophecy, and every potential answer has something of a weakness and leads us in a different direction. First, as we look at this prophecy, we need to ask about its relationship to us. Are the events in this prophecy past history, future prophecy, or a combination of both? And which is which? Secondly, if you're using your Bible, you might notice down at the very bottom of the page there's teeny tiny little print that most of you can't read anymore. Sorry. But in the little teeny tiny print down the bottom, there's a little note on the word weeks in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed. Well, the text note notes that the word is actually sevens. Seventy sevens are decreed. Seventy-sevens are decreed, and it's the same word that's used throughout the prophecy. Seventy-sevens, sixty-two, sevens, seven-sevens. So what are the sevens? Are they weeks? Are they years? Is seventy-seven, seventy-sevens, four hundred ninety weeks? Is seventy-sevens, four hundred ninety years? In addition, if it is years, how long a year is it? 
Is it the Jewish year, which is 360 days, or the lunar year, which is 365 days? Thirdly, are the numbers 70 times 7 literal or symbolic? Now, we've noted that apocalyptic literature loves to use numbers as symbols. So is this prophecy about a literal 490 weeks or years, or is it symbolic in the same way that Jesus taught us, you need to forgive your brother when he sins against you 70 times 7 times? Jesus wasn't saying on 491, you don't got to forgive him anymore. It was symbolic. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, you still got to forgive, Kev. Fourthly, notice in verse 27, there's a reference to a he. He. So who is he? He clearly refers to someone who's been identified in the previous verse, in verse 26. So does he refer to the prince who is to come to destroy the city and the sanctuary in verse 26? Or is the he the anointed one referenced in verse 26? And depending on which one you choose, brings you to very different conclusions. And finally, verse 25 tells us that the clock will start on this prophecy. That the timetable of the prophecy begins, it says, when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem. Friends, multiple decrees went out to rebuild Jerusalem. Was it the decree of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1? Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7? Or Artaxerxes' decree in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 and 5? Exactly which decree started the clock? And depending upon your answer, you end up with different conclusions and different timetables. It is a swamp. Be careful to find some solid footing in the middle of it. So in order for us not to get stuck and sink into the swamp, where is our solid footing in understanding this prophecy? What can we agree on? Friends, what everybody can agree on about this prophecy is there's no question. This prophecy is about Jesus. Let's start there. The prophecy centers around an anointed one in verse 25 and 26. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Mashiach, which we transliterate as Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised and anointed one. And there are six things listed in verse 24 of this prophecy that it says the anointed one will accomplish. And we know that Jesus accomplishes them all. Look at verse 24. List of six things. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy place. Now, the dispensational theology that I was referring to before agrees Jesus will fulfill all of these. We're in agreement. However, it inserts a time gap between the fulfillment of the first four things on the list and the final two. It teaches that Jesus fulfilled the first four in his first coming, and the final two will be fulfilled in his second coming. And in the same way, we're told in verse 24, this prophecy concerns the 77s. Well, dispensational theology inserts a time gap into this 70 weeks and the fulfillment of this prophecy, a gap between week 69 and week 70. And, and that accounts for Jesus fulfilling some of the things during the first part and then at his second coming, the 70th week of the prophecy. And again, I only bring that up to explain this way of understanding Daniel's prophecy because, again, it's been popularized by Schofield and left behind. Now, friends, personally, as I look at this, I don't find a gap. 
I don't see any gap in the 77s or the fulfillment of this prophecy. So let me offer an alternative understanding of this prophecy in the 77s. We all agree Jesus fulfills it. We all agree it's about Him. We all agree that He fulfills the list of things in verse 24, that He does those things. But how do we understand this 77s and the unfolding of it? You know, again, first, let's remember that whatever this prophecy does mean, it is a direct answer to Daniel's prayer. Put it in context. What's been happening? Daniel's been praying. What's he been praying about? Seventy years of punishment are ending. We're going home. But we have unrighteousness that needs to be dealt with, God. Our hearts are still wrong. You may be ready to change our habitation, but these hearts, God, we've got to do something about that. And this was Jesus' prayer. This was God, I'm sorry, God's response. God's response is Jesus. But God's response, His answer to the prayer about the 70 years of exile is 77. And the 77s, at which time the six things of 24 will be accomplished, including the atoning for sin and dealing with iniquity. 77s that will be accomplished, according to verse 25 and 26, by the anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah. So what do the 77s mean? Friends, could I put an idea out there? We see seven multiple times in the Scriptures. Back in the creation, God created in seven days. In the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment declares to us in Exodus 20, verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. So every seven days was to be a Sabbath rest for God's people as they remembered His provision and they worshipped Him. And then, friends, God commanded every seven years was to be a Sabbath rest for God's land. Exodus 23, verses 10 through 11. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat that what they, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat, that you do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. And that same seventh year that the land was released to rest, at that same time, debts were supposed to be released. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 teach, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So the seventh year was the year of the Lord's release, a Sabbath rest for the land, and release for those who'd fallen into debt slavery. But friends, this is where it gets really amazing, okay? So every seven days, the Sabbath rest. Every seven years was to be the rest. But then after seven sevens, Friends, after seven sevens was to be what was called the year of Jubilee. The 50th year. The year of the Lord's favor after seven sevens. Leviticus 25 explains, starting in verse 8. You shall count seven sevens. Seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. Look, more math facts. So the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. 
Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you. Then each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Friends, after seven sevens, people who had sold or lost their ancestral property because of debt would be returned to their land. Those who had no land, no means of being independent and earning a living, were returned to their familial lands. Debts were all canceled. Liberty was proclaimed. The land, the animals, and the people would rest in the Lord. It was as if the whole world was being reset and everything was being set to right again. And friends, I believe that this is what the prophecy of Daniel promises. God says, I'm going to set the world to right. Because the ultimate year of Jubilee is being proclaimed. Ten is so often used symbolically in apocalyptic literature as a sign of completion, fullness. If seven times seven is Jubilee, then Jubilee times ten, it's the fulfillment, the perfection of Jubilee. The perfect fulfillment of Jubilee is being declared. Israel's returning to her land. Her spiritual debts, they will be canceled. The world will be set to right. Daniel's been praying for forgiveness, cancellation of debt, restoration to the land. And the good news from Gabriel was that a great jubilee is coming for sinners. When the promised anointed one is going to seal a covenant and give his life as a ransom for many. Atoning for iniquity. Bringing an end to temple sacrifice because of his own perfect sacrifice. Verse 26 says, this is accomplished when the anointed one is cut off. Friends, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, was cut off. He was crucified, and in doing so, he finished transgression. He put an end to sin. He atoned for iniquity. He brought in righteousness. He is the prophet who is prophesied by Moses. He is the new and the better temple made holy by his sacrifice. He accomplishes all of the things in verse 24. And verse 27 tells us that he, who I believe is the anointed one, will make a strong covenant with many in the 70th week. And I believe that's the new covenant that Jesus has made by his blood. The many with whom he makes the covenant are the sinners for whom Jesus died. And the one week refers to the 70th week, which is ushering in the ultimate and the final and the perfect jubilee. And so it is that verse 27 declares that Jesus' sacrificial death put an end to sacrifice and offering in verse 27. Because church, from the cross, what did Jesus declare? It is finished. Friends, no other sacrifice will ever be needed. And as such, with Christ's death, the sacrificial temple system were finished. They were put to an end. Church, any other temple sacrifice would be an abomination because it would declare that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient and it would make Christ to be out of, make him out to be a liar when he said it is finished. Christ is the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the covenant maker and the sacrifice ender of verse 27. However, in verses 26 and 27, note the second figure. Verse 26 speaks of a prince who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And friends, we know that 37 years after Jesus was cut off, 
37 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, in A.D. 70, General Titus and the armies of Rome brought their legionary standards with the Roman eagle on them into the temple precincts, and they offered sacrifices on the holy altar, declaring Titus to be the victor. And after this abomination, the temple was then completely destroyed in A.D. 70, and was made desolate which was the concluding statement of this vision at the very end of verse 27. Now, friends, many attempts have been made, and that's my best attempt to understand this prophecy. But like I said, this prophecy is swampy, and so that's my interpretation, but that is not solid ground on which I'm going to take a firm stand. I will go toe-to-toe with you about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I will not on this one. And I won't build any theological systems either. But what I want you to walk away with from this chapter and this prophecy is what's most important. Friends, walk away with what's most important. Daniel prays, Lord, if we return to this land and it's merely a change of location and not a change of love, it's for naught. God, we need more than a restoration to our land. We need a restoration to you. God, we need our sins atoned for. We need righteousness given. We need our debts canceled. We need this world set to rights again. And God sent us Jesus, the Anointed One, to declare a perfect jubilee is coming. And friends, isn't that exactly what Jesus did in His ministry? Luke chapter 4 records that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, He was invited to speak in the synagogue. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opened the scroll and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what that says. Luke 4, 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There's that word, the anointed one. To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus has come to declare Jubilee. He's come to begin making all things new by His life, death, resurrection, and reign. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Debts can be canceled. Sins can be forgiven. Iniquity can be atoned for. For Christ, the Anointed One, has made a covenant by His perfect sacrifice, and no other sacrifice or covenant will ever be needed. And now we who are spiritual exiles can return to God, not just a new location, but a new love. Not just a new habitation, but a new heart. A right spirit within me. And one day at the end of time, Christ is going to return. The final trumpet will sound, and Jesus What he began with his first coming, he will consummate with his second coming. For Jubilee will be completed. All will be made new. All the sad things will come untrue. And the world will be set to rights again. And those who have trusted Christ will be with him forevermore. Friends, this is the gospel. 
And the really good news is that we don't need to wait to begin living the jubilee that Jesus started. For the jubilee has begun. Debts are being canceled. Slaves are being set free. Liberty is being proclaimed. Church, are you living fully in the freedom and forgiveness of the jubilee that Jesus has brought? Not just a change of habitation, a change of heart. And friends, whether you're here with us online or in person, do you know the freedom and the forgiveness of the jubilee that Jesus has come to inaugurate? And what would prevent you today from receiving and from celebrating with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that though we deserve justice, You've made a way that we can receive mercy. You've made a way that our sins can be forgiven, our iniquity atoned for. You've brought us a righteousness that is not our own. You are the new and the perfect temple, the all-sufficient sacrifice. You have begun and declared the year of Jubilee. And Father, may we live that freedom. May we declare that freedom. May we celebrate that freedom. And may you be honored in and through your church, your people, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In closing, please stand and join us in singing David.